I'm Abigail Meller, and welcome back to Generation Invincible, a brand new podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health problems facing our nation. When looking at health issues and the differences between men and women, there are a few things that you would obviously expect. Women are more likely to get breast cancer, although it isn't unheard of in men, and men are more likely to get prostate or testicular cancer. Pretty sure that one has never happened in a person who is biologically female. Today, I want to talk about a few issues in healthcare related to sexism that people don't always think of or assume. This episode will by no means be exhaustive, and if I were able to talk about all the things I would like to talk about on this issue, we would be here all day. Literally, I could talk about this all day, but I won't because that would suck. Here's the thing. Women face a lot of health and social issues that men will never have to deal with, solely on the basis of being a woman. Unequal pay, abortion rights, rape, misrepresentation in healthcare. Again, if I made this list exhaustive, we would be here all day. But those are just a few women's health issues I want to cover in today's episode, in which I'll discuss a woman's right to do whatever she wants with her body and some of the health disparities between men and women. wrong. I love my girl Shania. I grew up with her. Literally, I mean, I'm from the South and she's a country star. However, the best thing about being a woman isn't always the prerogative to have a little fun because once the fun is over, everyone around you will have an opinion about your life. I mean, we barely have the prerogative to live our lives how we please, do what we want with our bodies, and dress the way we would like to without the fear of being attacked by someone who says we look like we were asking for it. Alas, I digress. Like many things today that are extremely important but misunderstood, Planned Parenthood has a bad reputation. Since July 2015, anti-abortion activists have circulated a video that allegedly shows Planned Parenthood officials involved in the sale of fetal tissue for profits. If this were true, it would be horrific, and without a doubt, those involved would have been indicted and charged for the crime. However, in January, the Texas grand jury that was investigating the allegations that Planned Parenthood had been selling fetal tissue for profit ultimately indicted the two abortion opponents who created the now discredited videos. The director of the Center for Medical Progress, which, oh the irony, is an anti-abortion group, posed as a biotechnology representative in order to collect video evidence of his efforts to get tissue for research and then ultimately use that video to discredit Planned Parenthood. This kind of sale of fetal tissue, where the money given for the body parts surpasses what is needed to cover costs, is illegal, and accusations of Planned Parenthood committing such an act have not been supported during the numerous congressional and state investigations triggered by the release of the videos. And the largest negative ramification of this scandal, in addition to continuing to damage the reputation of a legal right, is that as a result, Planned Parenthood lost a lot of funding and support during the allegations and investigation. However, very little of its funding, about 3%, goes towards abortions. 
the majority of its funding goes towards, and I'm listing these in order of percent of funding used, STI and STD testing and treatment, contraception, other women's services, and cancer screening. What's the point of all this uproar? To limit access to abortions. In many states, there are so many barriers to getting an abortion that many women, and by the way, also children who may have become pregnant as a result of rape, are not able to receive one if they want it. For example, to receive an abortion in Texas, a woman is required to show official ID to prove she's not a minor, go to the abortion clinic two times in order to get a sonogram at least 24 hours prior to the abortion procedure, and a minor is required to have parental permission. These are all problematic, but the biggest problem here is the part requiring multiple visits spanning basically two days. Additionally, there is an ongoing argument in Texas regarding HB2, which you may or may not have heard of already and was argued about in front of the Supreme Court on March 2nd. HB2 has been in place for about two years and resulted in 14 clinics closing immediately after its passage, which left 10 total in our largest state. In a 2014 survey of 400 Texas women who sought abortions, 25% lived more than 139 miles from an abortion clinic. The argument against HB2 is that because of the clauses that require clinics to have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles and comply with standards for ambulatory surgical centers. These provisions have been deemed unnecessary because, according to doctors' groups like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who, by the way, oppose HB2, abortions are considered extremely safe and complications requiring hospitalization are rare. Ultimately, HB2 has caused what is referred to as undue burden on those seeking an abortion, making it difficult and often impossible for women who have to travel hundreds of miles to the abortion clinic and then pay for a hotel to stay for the 24-hour waiting period after a sonogram. Roe v. Wade, a Supreme Court decision from 1973, not only legalized abortion, but declared it a fundamental right under the United States Constitution. According to the court, a woman's choice to terminate her pregnancy or not to do so is covered by the guarantee to personal privacy. Since then, I feel like we've gone back on the promise that the court made to guarantee that right to women, and only made it more difficult and often impossible to make that choice. Which, by the way, it is a choice that all women have, whether or not to have a child. And all forms of that choice may come in, whether it may be not getting pregnant at all, carrying the baby to term and giving him or her up for adoption, or having an abortion, should all be respected, seeing as we live in a free country and all. Also, for those of you that do not agree with me and think that abortion should be illegal, I want you to know that I understand your perspective. And it is your right, just as it is a woman's right to choose to have an abortion, to think that abortions are wrong and that you will never get one. As you may have assumed, many of my friends identify as Republican, mostly because I come from a middle-class neighborhood in a suburb in the South. And one of my favorite political conversations that I've had with one of them was actually about abortion. Why, do you ask? Because this girl was open-minded and thought that even though abortion goes against her personal beliefs and that she would never get one, she also would never stand in the way of another woman's choice to receive an abortion if she wants one. The moral of the story is that even if you think they are wrong based on your personal values and beliefs, doesn't mean that you should infringe on someone else's life and violate their personal rights to instill your belief in others. Don't you think it's time to put a woman in the White 
It is no secret that as of last year, women make only 79 cents for every dollar earned by men. Equivalent to a gender wage gap of 21%, women earn less than men in virtually every single occupation. And remember those social determinants of health I talked about last week? For a quick reminder, according to Healthy People 2020, social determinants of health are conditions in the environments in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. So in the world we currently live in, where everything seems to be expensive or just downright overpriced, wouldn't you expect that that 21% of income to have negative ramifications on health? Let me just list some health-related things that are better with more money. Health insurance, quality food, ability to live in a safe neighborhood, ability to exercise, access to preventive care or a primary care physician, and yet again, if I listed everything I can think of, we would be here all day. Another major issue of the differences between men and women in healthcare is the representation of women in clinical studies. In recent years, professional journals have criticized the gaps in medical knowledge about women, questioned how the white male came to be the prototype of our human research subject, and commented on gender disparities in our scientific and medical knowledge base. Originally, the biggest issue with clinical trials was the unethical treatment of participants. As a result, rules were set in place to protect the volunteers. However, under these protectionist measures, ultimately pregnant women and women of childbearing potential were excluded from many clinical studies, particularly early phase drug trials. The idea that pregnant women and fetuses needed to be protected was further developed by the thalidomide disaster. Thalidomide was a drug approved for marketing in 1958 that was given to women in early pregnancy for nausea. However, it was not properly investigated prior to its mass use by pregnant women, resulting in a spike of birth defects, which was later understood to be a side effect of thalidomide. However, protectionist policies don't ultimately provide an explanation for the relative inattention to the study of health problems experienced primarily by women. Much later, the 1985 report of the U.S. Public Health Service Task Force on Women's Health Issues concluded that the historical lack of research focus on women's health concerns has compromised the quality of health information available to women as well as the care they receive. This issue was not really remedied effectively until 1991, when various provisions to address research, care, and prevention issues in women's health were included in the NIH Revitalization Act. After being vetoed by President Bush in 1992, it was finally passed by President Clinton and signed into law in 1993. What's the difference today? Well, basically, there is still a lack of reliable and comprehensive information on the participation of women in clinical studies. You can't even really research that type of information in relation to study populations at all. What do we know? Your biological sex determines a lot about your health. For example, three times as many women suffer from autoimmune diseases as men, but three times as many men suffer autism in comparison to women. Unfortunately, while everyone knows that the world's population is about split 50-50 men and women, there is a bias towards using males in animal studies. Neuroscientists use 5.5 males for every one female, pharmacologists use 5, and physiologists use 3.7. And a study published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology reported that women make up only 10% to 47% of each subject pool in 19 heart-related trials, even though more women than men die of heart disease each year. 
It's argued that because we know less about heart disease in women as a result of gender bias in scientific studies, women are less likely to know or recognize the early signs of a heart attack and get to the hospital. How many other diseases do you think have gender biases in their scientific studies that result in more cases or deaths in women than men each year? Holla at me if you find out. today's episode on a positive note. So from time to time, and maybe even more often than not, depending on how you guys like it, I'm going to spread the love and share with you an awesome person that inspires me. Today's shout out is a double one in the spirit of girl power and encouraging other women going to the stars of another podcast called Call Your Girlfriend. Aminatu So and Ann Friedman are two amazing women who every Friday put out one of my favorite podcasts besides my own. LOL. While I actually love every episode and get excited about new ones, one of my favorite inspiring and uplifting topics that they've talked about more than once on the show is called Shine Theory. Google it! To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Until next time, in the words of the amazing and inspirational Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. <laughs>